Good morning, and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. We like to bring you relevant topics here on this show and with our content in general at JewInTheCity.com. We generally shy away from political topics just because uh, there are lots of feelings around politics, probably more now than ever. Um, but when politics and Jewish law um, or sort of Jewish philosophy intersect, um, those are times where we will take a stab at the topic, but coming to it uh, from a nuanced uh, point of view, uh, coming to it with, um, you know, without taking a specific political side, um, but trying to show the Torah approach to um, how we handle this uh, kind of political issue. Um, the topic that we're talking about today um, involves the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is obviously just um, a lot of big feelings around this topic, um, you know, for, against, um, and, you know, not as many people somewhere in between. Uh, the truth is that the orthodox position on abortion is really does not fit into either political persuasion, what you normally see in the pro-life or pro-choice uh, American offerings. Um, we have a position of sometimes um, abortion is necessary in terms of saving the life of the mother for sure. Um, and then in terms of, you know, uh, health issues um, of the mother, um, both physical and mental health um, are things that, you know, many rabbis will uh, give an allowance for an abortion as well. And then in the issue of fertility of, you know, IVF, that's a whole other area where the Christian approach would say that at conception, a life has already begun, whereas the Jewish approach is more nuanced. Uh, we do allow um, you know, fetuses uh, to, or I guess embryos, fetuses to be created uh, for the purpose of um, IVF and being able to, you know, screen out genetic diseases. And so to walk us through um, how the overturning of Roe v. Wade may impact, um, you know, women in general and sort of our priorities following Jewish law, following halacha, um, we have with us today a fertility specialist um, named Dr. Uh, Sahar Wertheimer. Um, and we are partnering on this uh, interview with an amazing organization called JScreen. We've worked with them before. I and mean, we're always trying to find ways to both get the word out about JScreen because it's a great organization to use their services. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of relevant information in terms of being healthy for ourselves and also for producing healthy babies. But just a little bit about JScreen. Their mission is to prevent devastating genetic diseases by making genetic screening and counseling accessible and affordable. Based out of Emory University of Medicine's Department of Human Genetics, the program provides online education, at-home testing, and remote genetic counseling services across the U.S. Since its launch in 2013, JScreen's primary focus has been reproductive carrier screening for diseases prevalent in Jewish and other communities. The program has tested and provided genetic counseling services for more than 25,000 individuals and couples planning to start or grow their families. In January 2021, JScreen began offering a comprehensive genetic testing panel that uses advanced sequencing technology to analyze the BRCA gene, as well as over 60 other cancers, susceptible, cancer susceptibility genes. Their goal is to educate the community about the prevalence of Jewish genetic diseases and the increased risk to Jews to carry mutations in some cancer susceptibility genes. 
to provide easy access to screening, to identify at-risk individuals, to ensure that they have the information they need to help prevent cancer, to detect it as an early treatable stage in partnership with local organizations. They raise awareness, provide virtual or on-site screening and education, make sure the Jewish community understands the positive impact screening can have on health and future generations. Woo, that was a long blurb and I had some trouble with some of the words, but I think I got through most of it. Um, so anyway, to bring you to today, Dr. Sahar Wertheimer, um, she graduated from Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, she uh, is an OBGYN. Um, she uh, is at uh, Southern University Reproductive Center. Um, she is the she serves as a chair of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. Um, and this is an amazing organization that brings together Orthodox Jewish female doctors. Uh, Dr. Wertheimer, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so there um, is obviously a lot to unpack around uh, the you know Roe v. Wade um, you know sort of legal decision, um, and I think um, a lot of what we've maybe heard in the news are things like um, you know incest cases, rape cases, uh, life of a mother you know being an issue, and how the different states are going to be reacting to that. The place where um, you know you kind of uh, intersects with this legal decision is the planning maybe before the pregnancy or in the side of trying to get pregnant. So um, can you explain, um, you know, Roe v. Wade and what it means for reproductive rights or what Roe v. Wade has meant for reproductive rights since the 1973 court ruling? How had, did that impact your uh, practice of fertility up until a few weeks ago? Um, so basically Roe v. Wade was a um, case that was brought to the Supreme Court where in the um, in the ruling of that case, the Supreme Court just um, made the um, ruling that um, abortion is um, is a constitutional right and um, and that took it out of the hands of the state government and into the you know constitutional national right. So that women who were seeking abortions could seek them anywhere and in um, a safe, medical environment um, where the providers were not um, fearful of any retribution. Um, and recently the overturning of that constitutional right um, has um, given this decision back to the states. And we know that, you know, for example, 13 states, I believe it was, had trigger rules um, or trigger laws that were gonna immediately take effect the second it was overturned um, and um, banned abortion. And what is, currently unclear is what does this mean in gray area situations? So what does it mean in a case where, you know, abortions can be life-saving for the mother or that an abortion is needed because of a medical reason for the um, fetus? The fetus doesn't look like it's going to survive or it may have very severe developmental abnormalities or congenital abnormalities. Um, and then um, more recently, what's been called into question has been, um, fertility IVF, where we use, um, where we, where life, where, where the definition of life has become very important in these abortion laws, because um, in the IVF world, we deal with embryos where we um, fertilize eggs and, you know, the embryo is tested, it's biopsied, it's replaced back into the uterus, you know, so what does this mean? It does, does, does the definition of, of life or a fetus begin for these states in um, at the embryonic stage? It, does it matter if it's in or out of the uterus? 
Um, and um, that's basically kind of where we are now. A lot of gray areas. I imagine that um, IVF has made a lot of progress since Roe v. Wade um, came, you know, to become the law of the land in 1973. Did you know, and I'm not expecting you to be a historian, but do you know how that ruling impacted like where IVF was at that time? Or do you have any sense of the timelines of when, you know, embryos started getting created in test tubes and how did Roe v. Wade open up a whole new possibility of fertility for women that were not able to, um, you know, do IVF before that? You know, I don't, I am not aware, but I think my, my feeling based on the timeline that I do know is that IVF and really evolved after the, the Roe v. Wade ruling. And so it didn't, it didn't really touch much on, um, reproduction, which is part of the reason why we're having so much trouble now um, with a lot of these gray areas. And, and you know, what I was telling um, Essie from JScreen when we were discussing this is that it really all boils down to something which is very simple, um, which is that there is just, we don't know. We do not have the laws regarding these situations and we don't have the verbiage and, and it's, a, it's a lot of gray area. So what we can discuss would be a lot of, you know, what ifs you know, what, why are we concerned? Where do we think this is, this may or may not touch and um, what could it mean? But, but right now there is no um, short of, I just saw this morning, one of my friends posted on social media that, um, that in Idaho, they have um, put verbiage in their laws about um, an embryo and life outside the uterus also, um, also meeting criteria for abortions. So, you know, that's really scary for the fertility world. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as I explained at the beginning, kind of the more complex and nuanced perspective of abortion within halacha. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen Orthodox rabbis allow abortions within the practice, you know, your practice and the work that you do? Absolutely. So, um, you know, when I was a resident, we do, uh, where I was um, in New York, we had a big um, family planning division. Um, family planning are the doctors that perform abortions or more complicated abortions than the one that just a general OBGYN would perform. And um, a lot of times I wasn't sure if I could partake in the abortions and I would consult with a rev um, to ask if that was one that I could do or couldn't do. And I was often surprised um, by how many I was allowed to do. And I think that has to do with the um, complex halakhic outlook on um, up and there, I think there's different leniency levels depending on the gestational age of the fetus and also on what the um, reason for the abortion is. Um, medically indicated abortions are um, almost, I, I, won't, I won't say almost always, but very, um, I would say that the halakhic stance on it seems to be more lenient than the current um, political stance. Mm -hmm. Um, and can you think of any circumstances where there'd be tension between the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Halakha? Yeah, so, you know, um, just because of what we were just saying, you know, where Halakha will allow for an abortion um, for medical reasons or even sometimes for psychological burden um, or in cases um, that may be a, a medical reason, but a little bit more of a gray area. For example, Down syndrome sometimes um, is debated halakhically. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's going to depend state by state, 
what their allowances are. I know recently um, there has been a new law that has said that if the mother's life is in danger, then um, an abortion should be provided without fear of retribution for the doctors. And so that kind of that kind of helps us with the halakhic aspect of if a mother's life is in danger. But I still think that that is going to be um, for the for the mother's aspect. I still think that that's going to be very um, hotly debated and, and scary because there's such a range of what does it mean for a mother's life to be in danger? You know, there's imminent acute danger something like a hemorrhage or, um, you know, like the mother is um, seizing or pre, uh, an eclamptic where it's a hypertensive disorder kind of, so there's, there's the kinds of acute situations, but then there's also um, life-threatening situations that may be a little bit more um, um, subtle and pregnancy certainly will exacerbate those risks. And um, I like to make it very clear that, you know, pregnancy is a risk at baseline, like even in a very healthy pregnancy situation, um, pregnancy is a risk to the mother. Um, there can there can arise risks that were unforeseen um, and somebody who's totally healthy, um, much less people who have like, for example, a cardiac condition or something where pregnancy could exacerbate it. Mm-hmm. And then on the side of the fetus, you know, um, if, if halacha were to allow a termination because this is, does not look like a fetus that will either survive the pregnancy or if it did survive the pregnancy would have, have um, severe limitations in life, um, that's not so clear whether it would be allowed. And so um, I personally had a termination um, for a severe fetal um, defect and um, I just can't even imagine what I would have had, what I would have had to go through if um, I had to travel to a different state to have it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, um, this puts us, I think because we have such a nuanced approach that takes um, both mental and physical health into account, um, we've been, um, you know, the, the capacity to be able to exercise these rights within the law um, has been very helpful. And now we're really uh, reaching um, uncharted territory here. What can people do to prevent the need for abortions? You know, I don't think there's, um, we, okay, so uh, uh, what we call elective abortions are abortions that don't have a medical reason. I, I, I have said this many times and I, and I really feel it that the word elective is really, um, it's kind of judgy. <laughs> I don't think many women who are performing elective abortions feel that they're very elective. But, you know, for, for un, unintended pregnancies, we know the rate of unintended pregnancies in America is very high, it's 50%. And so preventing unintended pregnancies with better contraceptive counseling um, is certainly um, a way that we can work on that. Um, otherwise, though, if somebody's um, you know, uh, God forbid, gotten pregnant because of a forced situation or, um, or um, has a medical reason or is threatening to the life of the mother. I mean, those are not always reasons that can be prevented. There are, um, there are some um, genetic reasons um, that we can know about ahead of time. And I'm a very big proponent of um, JScreen and what they're doing, which is um, uh, screening for um, genetic diseases that are autosomal recessive. So diseases that we may carry, but we're not necessarily affected by. So we don't know that we're carrying these diseases. And these days in the 21st, in test diseases on expanded genetic carrier panels, 
um, that, uh, and, and some platforms are offering testing upwards of 500 diseases. And so if you and your partner were to carry the same autosomal recessive disease, your fetus would have a 25% chance of not just carrying the disease, but being affected by it. And so that may be something that we can also be um, trying to work on preventatively um, to avoid getting pregnant with, um, with a fetus that may have one of these um, diseases. But that, again, is also not incredibly simple. There are certain diseases that um, we don't really know how bad it may be in the life of the fetus, or there's a range of what it could be. And a couple may think they want to take their chances um, and not do um, so the way to prevent it, sorry, to take a step back would be to do IVF with um, something called PGTM, where we create a specific probe to that disease and we test the embryos to see if they're carrying that disease and we don't replace the embryo that um, may have that disease. So some couples may opt not to choose to spend all that money and time and effort and say, this doesn't sound like a disease that will be that bad, but maybe they find out on prenatal testing that it's worse than they anticipated. Um, and then also just, um, you know, in a, in a state like Idaho, where they've defined life as beginning at fertilization, even if it's outside of the uterus, are we going to even be allowed to test the embryos? You know, that's another great area. So I, I, it's hard to know when are we solving more problems and when are we creating more problems, but these are all um, kind of scary um, possibilities. Has your practice changed since the overturning of Roe v. Wade in terms of more talk or pushing contraceptions to avoid, you know, the elected pregnancy slash more pushing for people to genetically screen to avoid what could come later down the road? Is that, are you seeing that, you know, either for you or doctors, you know, are sort of starting a new conversation to try to avoid problems later on? Um, I'm in LA, very liberal and um, not overturning Roe v. Wade. So not much has changed for us. What we have heard a lot about is a lot of calls from other um, patients in other states asking if they can transfer their embryos to our center, um, which has been pretty complicated and something that we're still discussing. Um, but I have heard from other colleagues in other states um, really devastating stories and definitely a lot of anxiety and tension. Um, I do think people have been focusing on um, contraception well before Roe v. Wade because, um, believe it or not, this has been an interest of the OBGYN um, field for a long time. We don't want to be doing abortions like, um, like as if they're birth control. And I think that assumption that people make commonly um, in the very conservative um political sphere is very insulting. Um, and um, we've been focusing on lowering the unintended pregnancy rate for a long time. Um, and then on the flip side, though, um, um, what I have been seeing a lot about is that people have been um, focusing on how to get um, abortion medications um, just in case they need to do an abortion. And I just, I have mixed feelings that we, that women feel that they're in that situation um, and need to go to those lengths to, um, secure their reproductive rights. I hear. Um, can you talk a little bit about like sort of the Jewish and or like Ashkenazi genetic uh, challenge? Like, um, I guess anyone can be a carrier of any genetic disease, but because does being Jewish or Ashkenazi as opposed to other ethnicities, do we have an increased risk of, um, you know, passing on some of these diseases, which is why Organizations like I know Doria Sharm started, you know, uh, decades ago to stop Tay-Sachs and then, you know, 
Jace Green came along uh, later on to broaden the, the types of diseases that are searched for, but how do you know how much more of a risk um, either Jewish or Ashkenazi people are? Yeah, so anytime you have um, um, couples that are from the same ethnic background or um, same area, they can have, they are at an increased risk of overlapping for autosomal recessive diseases just because um, um, they've been procreating within their own community and so amplifying those genetic mutations, certainly within the Ashkenazi Jewish um, um, community, there is a high, much higher incidence of a lot of autosomal recessive diseases. Um, and actually in the Sephardic Jewish, there is as well, it's just been less tested. Um, but we know that certain diseases are, we're more likely to see in Moroccan Jews or, um, or Spanish Jews, for example, Ashkenazi Jews, there are some very famous, um, diseases like Tay-Sachs left like Gaucher's, um, autosomal dominant, like the BRCA gene, um, you know, uh, are more common. Um, and I, um, I applaud Doria Sharon's effort for trying to um, screen people um, of, with those diseases. The problem um, with that kind of narrow focus testing is that they were only screening, screening for um, those a panel of the most common Ashkenazi Jewish diseases and, um, and not necessarily the rest of um, genetic diseases. And I do have some friends that have had that, those testing, that testing done and later found out that they both carried a disease that they hadn't screened for earlier and did have a child um, with one of those genetic diseases. So I really um, recommend getting the full expanded genetic carrier panels that are offered today. Even if you've had testing, you know, 10 years ago, these panels have been more expanded since then, and you should get retested if you're still procreating. Um, just the fact that you haven't had any child, that you've been blessed not to have any child um, that has been affected by it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to happen in the future. And really all it is, is um, I don't mean to sound like this is trite, but it's it's just money. It's money to take this these testing, these panels, and it's not, it's not prohibitive. Um, and then once you guys, if you are overlapping for the same genetic disease, Yes, then IVF with PGTM is a considerable cost, but at least you're equipped with the knowledge, at least, uh, and there are organizations out there that help with funding. So, um, and, and, and don't, and I think what people often overlook is the cost of raising a child that does have a genetic disease, you know, that can be, that can be prohibitive. So, um, great point, uh, you know, um, yeah. they say, if you spend the money now, um, there's an expression where if you spend it now, the penny saved. I don't, can't remember right you now. Saving for later. Yeah. Um, but right now, it's, it's a very good point. Um, what about, um, let's just, I want to just explain to people listening right now. Um, the Dory Sharon process was blind or is blind. So you don't actually know what you're carrying. You just sort of find out if the match that you're, you know, being uh, told about is a, a safe match to get married, to have children with, but you don't actually know what you carry or don't carry. Um, and this could actually prevent people from getting married if they, you know, get badly matched with a, a potential, uh, you know, marriage partner, shidduch. Whereas the J screen model, you can already be married. You can already have had children. You can do the genetic screening, you know, later on in your marriage um, and then still have the insight into how high of a risk or what, what you may, um, you know, uh, produce in terms of, uh, you know, matching your genes together. Can you walk us through a couple of those? You said that some, um, some diseases are clearly going to be uh, life-threatening to, you know, the child. And then there's some diseases that are kind of, it could be a range. And when you get to the fetus, once the fetus has already been conceived, 
you would might find out later that it's a worse case of that. Are there any examples of diseases or sort of like specifics you mean of like someone might take the gamble and then find out that the fetus is having a worse case of this disease or this genetic problem? Yeah, yeah. So um, um, I was just thinking though, what you were saying, I wanted to just comment, you were saying on, yeah, the Doria Sharm preventing matches. I think it's really a very big misconception that if you keep, I've, I've seen it actually on a Persian influencer um, um, social media account here in LA where they said that I am against genetic testing because people should marry for love and kind of trust the process. And I think that that's a really big misconception that you can't marry for love if you guys overlap for the same genetic disease because we do have reproductive technology now in PG. TM um, to be able to test these embryos. Yes, it's not cheap, but certainly better than the option of not marrying somebody you love or um, marrying and having a really difficult um, case. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to say that. And then um, regarding the diseases that, so, so, you know, some of the diseases that we screen for, we know a lot about, we know about um, Tay-Sachs we know about um, cystic fibrosis. And then there's some diseases that we don't really know a lot about. And so um, when I say that it could end up being worse than you think, it, I mean it in two ways. One is that we don't have a lot of data on it. There's only a couple of cases out there in the, there's only not a couple, but a few cases out there in the world because we really wouldn't be screening for it unless there was a threshold. But, um, but even like, like some of these enzymatic disorders or, um, or like the weight, like nutrient um, deficiency disorder, some of them, they, if you, you will have to go to a specialist who has done a ton of research on that genetic mutation. Um, and even they will tell you, you know, you could have a mild case where your kid only requires X, Y, Z, or it could end up being more severe. And every time your kid is sick, they're going to need to go to the ER and, you know, it's going to be urgent. Mm -hmm. So you, you may not really have um, you may not really know, and you may decide to take a gamble because everybody that you met in your Facebook support group says it's been fine. Mm -hmm. That's how little that, that's how little you'll know. And then there's cases, for example, like, um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where it could range from, um, a newborn having like a life-threatening, um, um, hormonal disorder right at birth. And they need, and we need to know about that ahead of time to be able to save the fetus's life or the baby's life. Or um, it could be something as um, as simple as a, a um, delayed adult onset, where um, maybe it just means that that if it's a female fetus, they have a little bit more of um, um, higher male hormones, and so they kind of look like a PCOS patient, mm -hmm. um, which, as you know, is very common and um, totally um, um, compatible with life. So um, um, the range could vary, and there is some. Sometimes you can do more complex testing on um, the fetus itself once it's conceived to see what type you may have, um, but it's it's just more complex and it requires every disease is so specific it really requires a full counseling session. Not even with me, with a genetic counselor who's more knowledgeable. Got two minutes left. I want to just ask you how miscarriages might um, sort of be handled differently now um, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I mean, in theory, a miscarriage is something where the fetus has already, not in theory, in actuality, a miscarriage is something where the fetus has actually already um, stopped with the heartbeat. And so that's not technically aborting the, it might be aborting the pregnancy because sometimes pregnancies can continue to grow for a little while after the fetus has died um, to um, like the placenta is still continuing to grow. And so aborting, it would be aborting the um, pregnancy hormone. The word abortion kind of has different meanings in different worlds. Um, but 
really a miscarriage that has already happened should not be prevented from um, being completed. The reason why we care is because um, miscarriages left untreated could turn into um, infections, could turn into hemorrhage, and so we want them to be taken care of. Um, and the reason why the overturning of Roe v. Wade has become a little problematic is it's instilled a lot of fear with a lot of gray areas um, about about whether or not that's allowed, and um, and has has caused some delays in treatment. There's been a lot of articles on this recently where um, a situation which should be allowed has um, has been not so clear to the provider and for fear of retribution, there's been delays in cares that have been ended up harming the patient. Mm. And so that's, and also the dispensing of the medication for the medical abortions has been problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any uh, resources that you can offer our listeners for, you know, kind of finding their way through some of these complicated uh, legal halakhic challenges that we're seeing ourselves in now? You know, there's a lot of um, Jewish organizations that have been doing a lot of answering of questions and providing a lot of resources. Um, Pua, um, Sherboni Olam has been um, helpful. Um, Yish Tikva, I was supposed to have a baby. Um, J Screen, and I think they can all be helpful in pointing people to um, a better uh, to better legal counsel and also um, halakhic and medical counsel. I think that would be a good place to start. Certainly there's places like Planned Abortion, Planned Parenthood and, um, and um, other resources on the flip side, just the medical side where you can look for uh, information. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. I think everyone is sort of like figuring this out at the same time. So, and some parts of this, you know, just don't have clarity yet, but right. it's good for people that are in this, you know, part of their life or hoping to be soon to understand what, you know, ramifications may unfold from this so they can be the most prepared possible. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much uh, for your time. My pleasure. So nice. Nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. And you can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.